Next Chapter Podcasts. Welcome back, Greenlighters, to How I Got Greenlit. I'm Ryan Gibson. Today we have a special presentation. Our friend Michael Brody invited Alex and I on his show, Cinema Splash Page. I'd like to take this opportunity to say a few words about Michael. As you all might know, my dear and longtime friend Alex Kalajan is probably one of the most well-versed, nay, encyclopedic mind in his fathomless well of film knowledge. Mr. Brody is also one of these brilliant folks. We appreciate him having us on his show, so please check him out and subscribe. Again, his show, Cinema Splash Page. Something new, we'd like to give a shout out to those who have been interacting with us and supporting us on their Instagram page. These include Ken underscore Putnam. Hope you enjoyed the script. Sambo Steve. We know him as Stephen Kopfer. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And Mike Betchy. It's all one word. M-I-K-E-P-E-C-C-I from his show In Love With The Process. Mike, I absolutely need to take you out to dinner and compare beard oils. Although... I have no information about beard oils, so we might just end up talking about movies. Nonetheless, I hope we can do that soon. Thank you guys for all your support and messages. Please join us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and at howigotgreenland.com. Email us at howigotgreenland at gmail.com. You know the routine. Five stars. All that being said, here's Michael Brody from Cinema Splash Page. Thanks everyone for listening. Have you heard about Cinema Splash Page? It's a new podcast featuring conversations with filmmakers, authors, comic book creators, and storytellers of all kinds. But here's the twist. Instead of having the guests come on to talk about their careers, we ask them to discuss the works of other creators, the people who've influenced and inspired their own work. Topics differ from episode to episode, but the one thing you can always count on is that there's going to be a lot of movie talk. A lot, a lot of movie talk. Cinema Splash Page, available where all fine podcasts are available. Look us up. It's a fun show. Have you guys noticed that Amazon, once you dick, dick, once you dick around, once you dig one layer deeper. Sorry, a a good dick slip is hilarious to me. I'm sorry. I had to crack up on that one. Um, sorry, is this, uh, are we brought to you by the Latter-day Saints or anything? Are we good on the fucking, fucking and sucking in this one? I think we're going to be okay. Action. Welcome to Cinema Splash Page. I'm Michael Brody, and back in the early 2000s, I managed a couple of comic book shops and ran a couple of video stores too. Back in those days, if you'd asked me for a movie suggestion, I might have recommended something like Crossing the Bridge, Mike Binder's delightful and criminally underseen film from 1992. It's about three teenage friends in 1970s Detroit who cruise around in their Buick, The War Wagon, talking about girls, their potential futures, and high school glory. And they do all this while considering getting involved in a scheme to run drugs across the border. The film has excellent drama, comedy, and that oh-so-rare ingredient missing from most films, 
genuine chemistry between all the lead characters. As far as coming-of-age films go, I consider this to be one of the best. Again, this is called Crossing the Bridge. Back to what I'm up to these days. Lately, I host a weekly radio program, publish the occasional short story, and spend my Sunday nights running a live show I call The Best Damn Trivia in Montreal. You can find me on stage asking some very silly questions every Sunday at 8pm at a place called Grumpy's Bar in downtown Montreal, Quebec. My guests today are Alex Collegian and Ryan Gibson. First up, Alex Collegian. Alex is the creator of Project Greenlight, the documentary television series that gave first-time filmmakers a chance to direct their first feature films. Movies that were generated through the show include Stolen Summer, The Battle of Shaker Heights, and Feast. In 2018, Alex wrote and directed the film High Voltage, starring David Arquette and Luke Wilson. Also in 2018, Alex produced a film that's a beloved favorite of mine, Freaks. Freaks, by the way, was made by a previous guest of this very podcast, Zach Lepofsky, who, along with Adam B. Stein, co-wrote and co-directed the film. Moving on, our second guest today is Ryan Gibson. Ryan is a longtime visual effects artist who worked on such amazing projects as Carnivale, Fear the Walking Dead, Stan Against Evil, and Alex's aforementioned film, High Voltage. Ryan has since moved on from visual effects and taken on the mantle of producer on such films as the critically acclaimed God's Country, as well as Woe, and the upcoming horror comedy Slother House, emphasis on sloth like the animal. Okay, so that's their quick bios taken care of, but there's something even more interesting to mention now. Ryan and Alex have teamed up to create a podcast, which is called How I Got Greenlit. How I Got Greenlit is a weekly podcast featuring in-depth personal interviews and lively roundtable discussions with Hollywood's hottest media makers, as well as innovators in music, advertising, business, and more. The guests share their humble origin stories, their brushes with legendary figures in film and TV, and let the audience in on their greenlit moments of breakthrough success. Sounds like fun. Sounds like more fun than my show. Alex, Ryan, Thanks for stopping by. Hi. Hi. Guys, if it's uh, not too much trouble, would you mind telling me a little bit about your podcast? Uh, yeah, How I Got Greenlit was kind of started as a hobby. We were trying to uh, stay sober during the aforementioned uh, COVID pause. Almost worked. And it evolved from there, and we were lucky enough to meet some very smart people who actually do podcasts and know what they're doing. and. They gave us a lot of input and guidance on how to, how to actually make something that people want to listen to. And uh, we were off and running. We, we partnered with the Next Chapter Podcast, who are our corporate daddies. And they've been really helpful in giving us the support we need, including our producer, Pete. Hi, Pete. Rope. They gave us rope. They gave us rope to hang ourselves. So the funny thing is, and you probably discovered this, it's it's a lot of fun. It's uh, it's social. It's therapy. It's demented and sad, but we enjoy it. And people seem to be responding. So we're going to keep doing it. I think you're forgetting one of the other things that it is, Alex. It's uh, financially lucrative. Bought my house. Oh, that's good. So we've all bought houses through the magic of podcasting. I mean, that's just a small percentage of what we bought. And I think that's why we're here, right? We're selling podcast shares to the yes. uh, young hungries out there in uh, Buena Park, Florida. Welcome to Pod, Pod 9000. It's similar to buying timeshares. You just pay all the time. And then you can never get out. Yeah. 
Exactly. And in our case, and probably with yours too, it's just fucking fun, dude. And and we love doing it. We love doing ours. We love doing yours. We do it on our own. We we do it with uh, in a bat two seed costume. Whatever you want. All right, one more thing before we get going. I would like to ask you about one project each that you've worked on and maybe you have a quick anecdote to share about what you did on those films and what the experience of working on them was like. Alex, you produced Freaks, which listeners of this show already know I love and can't stop singing the praises of. And Ryan, you worked on God's Country, a really interesting film I've seen that starred Tandy Newton and came out in 2022. Alex, why don't you go first? Tell me something about your involvement with Freaks. Well, Freak started in a garage in 1978. No, I had zero to do with it. Um, I helped some people do some things, and uh, I got uh, money and credit. Thank you. Welcome to Hollywood. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, I did almost an entire hour on it with Zach. No, I look. I I think it's hilarious. Like I, if I was in a room with Ryan, we would have shared a side eye, which is I think it's fucking hilarious. I mean, look. Let me just let me let me. You could really you could really unload here. No, no, here's what I'm going to do. Mitch Waxman, this is a call out to a friend of our show and a, a producer partner and Good friend guy. of ours, Mitch Waxman. So Mitch was a key man and well, I, I've known Mitch for 10 years. He's a great guy. We're friends. He's a producer and a writer. And he was a key man on Ryan, my film, High Voltage, in the sense that we had shot the film, but you know, as inevitably happens to the great and, and the meek among us, you need reshoots or you need additional footage or the studio says whatever. In our case, we made a tweener, which is it was a horror. It was rock and roll. It was a drama. It was a comedy. It was a satire. It was a sci-fi. It, it was a whatever. And these sales agents and distributors were like, we just need a horror. So can you please just go back in there and like juice that up a bit? So Mitch came in as a late stage investor producer. He found some money for us and helped us do some additional shooting. Was there in sort of the latter half to, to help push the ball back up at the top of the hill and really helped us out. So cut to a few months later, he's producing Freaks. They get stuck in a jam with some casting issues and I am lucky enough to return the favor to Mitch and make him look like a hero by getting a, a key piece of cast, Emil Hirsch. So when Emil came on, that triggered their financing. They were off to the races and, and made a great film. I, I agree with you. I'm a fan. But I'm also a fan in the sense that the first time I saw it was, you know, on TV. Like I, <laughs> I was I was an afterthought. But they were nice enough to credit me and you know, that's what's funny about making films, and Ryan will back this up, is that everybody plays their role. I was the least of them, but I did a little thing that helped my friend that did a little bigger thing that helped them do an even bigger thing, and then the film turned out great, and I understand they're doing bigger and better things. Mitch has gone on to make other stuff, including our latest opus called Firebird. So that's a good example of... When you see there's 14 producers on any film and it seems like the smaller or more independent the film, the longer the producerial credits are, et cetera. And in that case, they were nice enough to give me a little, little something, a little wet my beak a little bit. And uh, I didn't want to stick them because they you know, obviously needed all the money to do all the incredible effects they did for nothing. But I did get a producer credit. And, and 
by the way, you're not the first person to be like, dude, I love that movie. Yeah, you know, I'm like, ah, <laughs> you know, that started at a cocktail party with Stan Lee and ended up as a cult classic. No, zero to do with it. Did a favor for a friend who did a favor for me. And that's really how this business works, I think. Okay, Ryan, why don't you tell me something about working on God's Country? God's Country was shot in Montana, and there were uh, murmurs of there were murmurs of the COVID plague heading to our shores at that time, but no one really thought anything of it. So we were up in Montana, and I think when I first drove up there, I went through one of the biggest blizzards that I think I've ever driven through in my life and I was like oh god this is going to be really interesting and survived that and we shot in a little town called Livingston that was our home base and it was it was really an interesting experience because we shot that movie over three or four weeks I think it was four I think we were into our fourth week and we were nearly done with the film and we all got together the higher up producers the leadership team got together it was like five of us i'll never forget this we were standing in the back of a mortuary filming the scene where she's processing her mother processing her mother's dead body that sounds more nefarious than actually i think she's just watching her get cremated or something isn't that hormel processes hot dogs in the same fashion yeah it's the same it's like one side of the building is hormel and the other side is Shout out to show uh, sponsor Hormel. Thanks Hormel, for yeah. having us on. <laughs> we love your meat-like products. <laughs> <laughs> and then we're like, wow, this COVID thing is really happening right now. And at that time, there were no rules through the unions or guilds for dealing with COVID. And we, we had had a meeting about a week before that saying, hey, this thing is getting real. They're shutting down productions all over. And we had gotten to the point where I think the only other film that was in production from what I've heard was something that they were doing in the Southeast. I can't remember the name of the film, but they were, there was only one other film basically in production. And anyway, it, we had to shut down. We made the decision to shut down with a week to go. And I was like, this is so bad. I was shocked. We'll never finish this. It'll never finish. There's no, there's no way. I was never. I you, didn't you're think starting was. at the be, at the end. What's how do you pronounce the star's name? Tandy Way Newton. It's not Tandy Newton. It's Tandy Way Newton because I think when she did her first film, they just truncated it, and that's not her name. And she was always very. She was not happy about that, and and rightfully so. It's not her Fucking name. Fucking a. Her name is Tandy Way. Let the word be known. I, I'm a huge fan. She's amazing. She's wonderful. She's wonderful in person. She's very kind. She's very nice. I spent some time with her, and she, she's great. She's fantastic, and she's a hell of an actor. And she was in Mission Impossible 2. I just actually saw that recently again. That, like, Spanish dance sequence and all that? It's amazing. It's probably the most stylish, although De Palma's is pretty good, too. She is as gorgeous as ever. Yeah. So I said to myself when we were closing down and everyone was just devastated. Everyone was sitting in pews. I'll never forget this. We were standing on uh, like in the front of the chapel and the executive producer was like breaking it down and everyone was just, it was devastating to know that we weren't going to finish. And I was driving home from Livingston after closing things down after a week. And I was like, there will not be work for a year. And almost a year to that date, 
was when I drove back up to Montana to finish it. And we had to shoot another. We basically had to reshoot the movie because we lost one of the co-stars to a television project. It was also a movie that it snowed like crazy for most of it. And then when we needed the snow, we actually had to pay to truck it in from a mountain because there was no snow. So we had to set, if you've watched the movie, there's an A-frame house where Tandyway lives and all of that snow had to be trucked in. And so we spent a night trucking that snow in and it was ridiculous. Was that like a Smokey and the Bandit prequel, like Hall and Ice? Hall and Ass, Hall and Ice? Yeah, yeah. And uh, a small note to this, the A-frame house. Have you, Michael, you said you've seen the, the film? Of course. Does it look like we burned that house down? I mean, I'm not watching the scene right now, but I'm going to say yes. Yeah, so that we actually built a scale model, old Hollywood style, and matched the angles. How big? Quarter. Uh, no. Quarter? That's like a garden shed. Yeah, quarter the size. It was a garden shed. Quarter the size and burn it down. Nothing beats practical effects. Nothing. Yeah, it worked so great. Which, which I'm currently lecturing to a visual effects artist, so that's fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, no, he'll tell you. I mean, Ryan, I mean, we'll, we can geek out a little bit on that. Right? I learned so much from him. It will probably be just as acerbic as what I just said, the story about shutting down because of COVID. So I don't know if we want to go down that road. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we could continue to go through your IMDb pages project by project, but that's not really what we do here on Cinema Splash Page. Over here, we do things a little differently. We're here to talk about the films and other media that may have influenced and inspired you. So whenever you're ready, one of you, why don't you jump in with a title, tell me a little bit about it, and we'll see where this goes. The Final Countdown, 1978. Never mentioned on this show before. Fucking love it. Tell me... Before we get into it, remind the audience, what is The Final Countdown about? The Final Countdown is about what if the Cold War peak USS Enterprise was sent back to December 5th, 1941 off the coast of Hawaii. And they don't really explain how or why, but Kirk Douglas is the intrepid captain. Martin Sheen is the hippie pinko journalist. And uh, some other badass types of that era. Help me out. James Farentino and Ron O'Neill and the great Charles Durning. Yes, James Farentino, baby. Charles Durning, doing Charles Durning. Oh, he does do Charles Durning in that one. And it is, it's one of those films that's not great, and yet, it's fucking awesome. I've seen it a bajillion times. It was one of those rerunners when the kids, back when you didn't control your viewing pleasures, uh, it would turn up on like, you know, the afternoon movie on the local UHF station. And uh, it's just fun as hell. It's the ultimate what if. So this what if is, what if one modern aircraft carrier with all the planes and all the goodies, could it prevent the attack of Pearl Harbor? And then the, the debate on the, on the boat is, should we? Sorry, USS Nimitz, not the Enterprise. And so it's a lot of fun and a little bit of the classic time travel, like should we or shouldn't we? And, uh, but it's, it's just good old-fashioned scenery chewing with Kirk Douglas. Martin Sheen is sort of the voice of reason. This must have been right after his near-death experience with Apocalypse Now because he looks very thin 
and sort of academic as he should be as like the journalist, like saying, should we be spending so much money on all this armament? It's a very pro-military jingoistic subplot, but I love it. No one's heard of it, and mm-hmm. that's a damn shame. And Ryan, we've talked about a shared love of this movie, yes? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's fascinating. I think, I don't know this factually, but I, I think part of it probably when they were writing it was based on the Philadelphia Experiment. Very much so. Which they also made a movie out of. They did around that time, which was, I think, a, an inferior product. How dare you? Michael Paré is a god. Yeah, I was going to say Michael Paré being the highlight. I think not Diane Lane, because that would be Streets of Fire, and they would break into song. But oh, God, I love that one. Yeah, that was a good one, too. By the way, we just watched uh, Phantom of the Paradise for uh, another guest of ours, and that makes Streets of Fire look like Citizen Kane, folks. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway. I, I have a similar shared love. It wasn't quite as influential influential for me, but I do remember like WGN back in the day or WTT4 in Indianapolis. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're both from the Midwest, and so the, the world's greatest newspaper, the Chicago Tribune, bought radio towers and eventually television, so that's what WGN stands for. They were the first superstation even before uh, TNT. T, uh, or was it TBS? TBS, yeah. And uh, so basically we're like the station for a thousand miles in any direction of Lake Michigan. And that's where I saw like Treasure of the Sierra Madre for the first time and Casablanca and Maltese Falcon and even like these kind of movies where it just was a fun curation of modern and classics that helped define us as we were the we were kind of the latchkey TV local broadcaster like the son of Svenguli was the guy who was the local host that put makeup on and that's where I saw like mm-hmm. feature from the Black Lagoon for the first time and so you know thank you to the, they were like the early tastemakers of our of you know the Gen X childhood let's call it all right well while you were busy watching the final countdown far too many times I think I was wrapped up watching my science project which is Probably an equal quality movie that I liked a lot more than I probably should have and would not age well if I watched it today. I want to give a shout out. Family Classics, hosted by Fraser Thomas, started in 1962 and aired for 20 years after that. And shout out to them. I mean, they they turned me on to like Treasure Island and just all the what what you think, the Christmas movies, High Noon. It was almost like an early film school before you started going to the $2 cinema where they do the Friday night classics and stuff like that. Another lost art. I don't even know what I'm talking about. Back then, we were smoking Marlboros and lighting them from the cigarette lighter in my car, baby. (laughs) Well, kudos to you because uh, plenty of people will come on the show and mention Treasure of Sierra Madre or High Noon as heavy influences. I'm pretty sure that no matter how many episodes of the show I end up doing for the rest of my life, no one is ever going to bring up Final Countdown again. (laughs) The Final Countdown. Yeah. No relation, okay? Uh, Ryan, why don't you give us a title that means something to you? I'm going to say, I don't know if this fits into your thing, so I'll break the mold a bit. But when I was growing up in a small town called Muncie, Indiana, there was a broadcast station I mentioned earlier called WTTV4. On that station, I believe it was on Friday nights, 
there was a guy named Sammy Terry who they had night. It was called Nightmare Theater with Sammy Terry. And I would beg to stay up and watch this guy who was dressed as a ghoul. And he had a, a spider on like a monofilament that would come down and like squeak <laughs> and like go. Blah, blah, blah. It was like his co-host. And he'd get out of his coffin and he would do Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. The mommy uh, doing a little research for the show here for our appearance today. I, I didn't know this, but Val Luton of RKO, mm-hmm. like RKO's studio, like weird ones like Monster on Campus and Tarantula. And the Incredible Shrinking Man. I mean, there were there were these films that just like practical effects. Them, them, yeah, practical effects, and just really interesting to a young to a kid who was literally like pre ten years old. I wasn't even a teen yet. I was just fascinated by it. And I'm not a person who's into horror, but I love making horror stuff. So it's kind of a strange. That's kind of a strange thing. The film that that I love and I wish they would make these nowadays, but they really don't anymore, that had a real influence on me, and I'm sure it's been mentioned on the show before, was Real Genius. That movie, for some reason, in that kind of time of these comedy, I just don't think they make these movies anymore. I think it's a risk for even independents to make movies like this. And the mix of comedy and being a young you know, I was 10 years old when that movie came out, and I just remember watching it and thinking, God, I like seeing these kind of older kids, especially someone who is not far from my age, going to college and like the events of college. And so that story had a real influence on me, which is kind of strange, but they don't, it's hard to make those kind of movies anymore. They just don't do it. Well, Real Genius, aside from being impossibly smug is filled (laughs) with imagination. That movie is... Love that movie. It is a really, really smart film, but it is... They would never make it now. It's got a hundred... Well, smart and dumb. Yeah, it's got a hundred moments in it that would pretty much get the film canceled, so... Well, what bummed me out is that Val Kilmer... Did you guys see Val? The documentary that Val Kilmer made? Yep. I was half tuning in just to be like, tell me about real genius, you know? And, and nothing. He, he no. denies it. I thought it was amazing. Val had a whole other career as being like a good-looking Bill Murray if he wanted it, I feel, after that movie. And he yep. just he kind of went his own way. But I love it, and it, it's, it's so... I mean, yes, you have to go back and like, be like, okay, this is what they knew. This is the situation on the ground. This is what was allowed. And even then, it was a little out of bounds, but just really funny and like a cool little story producer dean devlin is one of the nerds i love this sort of like what happened to people after the fact and you know the the dude that was like the super smart guy that lived in the closet turned up everywhere as a that guy for years after he was the thug in get shorty and now most recently he was the evil husband on the HBO show, he played Jennifer Coolidge's husband. John Grease. Yeah, I love that guy. John Grease. Just like uh, that guy extraordinaire, right? Yeah, he was on like 300 episodes of The Pretender. Oh my God, that's a run. There you go. And who knew that? Good pull. Fucking A. I just, I'm a John Grease fan. He may have one of the greatest mullets of all time in this film as well. <laughs> I think his brother made the Helter Skelter movie. 
the Charlie uh, Manson film for TV. Wow. And John Grease, um, he's got a small part in it, and he seems like a complete amateur in that film. And then you realize, okay, this is where you got your start. And he moved on, and yeah. By real genius, he'd found something as a character actor. Laszlo. Laszlo. Yeah. I mean, if I bumped into him, I, would he be happy or sad if I just went it deep into the, like, tell me Laszlo stories, bro? <laughs> and he'd be like, I've been working in this business 59 years, you son of a bitch. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he'd be annoyed that you didn't bring up White Lotus at least a little bit. No. I bet, I bet not. What you love about a guy like that is it doesn't matter if it's the smallest film or the biggest film, he's delivering. And he was, and he did. Character actors live on. I mean, it's a lost art, but a guy like that, you always know what you're going to get. Running Scared. Shine sweet freedom. I have to say something about Running Scared. Love that movie. Are we talking about the 1986 movie or the 2000? Yes, no, no, no. The what? No, the no. what? The what? There is no other. The 1986. We're talking about pairing. Well, let's talk about this for a second. We're talking about the cumulative weight of uh, 198 pounds uh, when you add up Billy Crystal and... Gregory Hines. Gregory, Gregory Hines. Gregory Hines. So there are 198 pounds of uh, Chicago police action fighting against a sexy stand and deliver Jimmy Smith's with Dan Hedaya. Joey Pants. Joey Pants. Another, Darlene we were just Fugle. talking about Joey Pants. Always. Joey Pants is the always, man. You always get him. You got, if you can get him, you get him. Uh, well, I'm a big Dan Hedaya fan. I mean, dude, Dan Hedaya was the star in the Coen Brothers' first movie, Blood Simple. They needed his star power <laughs> back then. Him and M.M. at Walsh. I mean, they were the big draws for that. Get me Hedaya. So, Running Scared... I loved that movie. It was about Chicago. Do you know what I was watching the other day? No. Somebody aired the music video. Do you remember the music video of the Sean Sweet? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So it's Michael McDonald badly lip syncing himself and the two of them mugging more yeah. than like a chimp on <laughs> like birthday cake. Like pointing to each other and like he would dance. Blocking the camera. Yeah, like I'm in front. Mugging. No, no, you're in front. No, I'm in front. No, no, you. No, you. And <laughs> somehow macho sex symbols in short shorts and roller skates and like belly shirts. Do you Belly shirts. That? Yeah, cut off. Cut off belly shirts. Growing up in Chicago... That was the most honest portrayal of a Chicago winner and feeling fucking fed up and wanting to move to Key West and open a bar. Like that part of that, for all the other things that were less than realistic, like those are the last two people in, on planet Earth that will ever <laughs> serve in the Chicago Police Department. Can you imagine? But having grown up in Chicago, the shitty, gruddy fucking sludge sticking to the bottom of your 1978 olds fucking regal regal <laughs> like it was exactly right you know can you imagine and, the uh, elevator pitch and mgm for that no but here's the joke the whole thing about running scared is a lot like those movies of that era where it started out radically different and ended up that way did you know that beverly kills cop was a sylvester stallone vehicle until like the last minute yep no i did not know that that is famous trivia. It was serious. And so I think Running Scared was also developed for like 
Lee Marvin and Burt Lancaster. I mean, it was like, it was much more of a cop movie, like a, a straightforward, I'm sick of this shit. Let's open a bar in Key West. Well, my favorite one of all of those is the movie Bad Boys, which wound up being a Will Smith, uh, Martin Lawrence film, was supposed to be Dana Carvey and John Lovitz. Yes. That is, yes. That is a weird alternate universe version of that movie. Yes. My mind literally just cracked in half knowing that. But was Michael Bay still attached, or was it like John Avildsen? Like <laughs> John Badham. I want to see the John John J. Avildsen version. See, Alex, this is what I'm talking about when we do the roundtable with those guys of alternate universe movies, where you know, yeah, we were talking about that too. It's a fun one, or like Peter Himes, which sort of dovetails into my next choice, which is Capricorn One. Oh God, good one, Alex. Dun, 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 dun. All right, let's hear a little bit about Capricorn One. 1977 he had a run i mean he i'll just say peter himes super influential guy unsung sort of action journeyman director his role in ryan strap in capricorn one 1977 telephone 1977 hanover street 79 the hunter steve mcqueen's last movie 1980 outland, yeah, outland. 1981 connery in space with a shotgun with a shotgun. With the shotgun in space. Sawed off. Running scared. The Presidio. Narrow margin. Time cop. Sudden death. End of days. Yeah, the films don't kinda... really get better at the end. I mean, he's the guy who had the audacity to make a sequel to 2001. So, Which, by the way, I, I like that movie. A lot of people do. I dig it. It's Scheider. It's on, it's on somebody's list. I don't know what. But it was like universally like how dare you and not having that snobby like attitude about it. I just watched it like a film. I really enjoyed it. I did too. Hard science. It's a fascinating way to see how directors handle material, right? Someone could have said, okay, we're going to keep this pristine, slow, whatever. No, it's like Roy Scheider is he's on a boat in space. Fresh off of Blue Thunder. <laughs> exactly, which by the way surprisingly i thought that was peter himes it was badham who the two of them were battling it out for the 70s and 80s they're on parallel tracks at that point well you've never seen him in the same room <laughs> and to be fair peter himes did not wind up directing episodes of supernatural so is that where badham ended up badham ended up doing a lot of episodic fun dumb tv in the last hey man Got to pay the, got to pay them bills, dog. You, you know who else was fun and dumb? His fourth wife. Leave the guy alone. <laughs> All right. That's a real and, genius level joke you got there. Yeah, uh, that's fantastic. Shot sweet freedom. Michael McDonald, you go away. And also, by the way, right behind these guys, Jerry Goldsmith doing all the music to all the best of them. Da 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 da. Yeah, that's another thing we don't have anymore is that when you watch movies from this era is the movie is completely scored. Scored to the point where you're like, wow, this is... Sometimes it's overpowering, but a lot of times it adds to it. And I don't think you see that as much anymore. Actually, we I, I don't know if, Ryan, you were in on this conversation. When, when we were making High Voltage, the composer of the score was like, okay, do you want this, you want this? And, and he, he was going for what now we're in, which is a sort of era of the anti-Jerry Goldsmith or the anti-John Williams, which is either they're too afraid to take him on or it seemed like corny and old because, you know, let's be honest, Ryan and I are corny and old. But the thing is, is like 
that kind of music where it definitely underpins what's going on, right? Like I just rewatched Raiders last night and I was looking at it for just the music. Like I was kind of, you could close your eyes and you got about 50% of your story from John Williams or Jerry Goldsmith. So the composer was like, hey, you know, do you want this kind of moody, like sex lies and videotape tonal? I'm like, no, I don't. He's like, oh, you want to go old school? No, it's not old school. That's the fucking other button you're supposed to press to like, we're all manipulating emotion here. Get in there, champ. Let's do it. Don't be wallpaper. Have you guys all seen RRR? Mm -hmm. Which I would put on my list of like, oh shit, there's a movie I just saw, but it's influencing the hell out of me. It, I think it wouldn't be hyperbole to say it sort of reestablished my faith in like films. I was so pleased. I had no idea what I was doing. Filmmaker friends were like, just come, trust us. Didn't look at a trailer, didn't look at a poster. Like as virgin of viewing experience as you get. And I was blown away. And the whole theater was like cheering and laughing and punching each other in the shoulder and like standing up. It's a fucking hoot and a half. Yeah, it's a roller coaster ride. Punch in the face. RRR is a classic roller coaster ride. It's awesome. I just wish it was longer. <laughs> really? No. You did one more. Da- you did one more dancing. You did one more uh, at 187 minutes. You didn't want. You didn't want to. I got the joke. <laughs> I liked a lot of it, but it it's a two hour and one minute movie in a three hour and ten minute movie's body. So it's, it, was, it was a lot for me. Funny, that's what I said about uh, uh, Irishman. I'll be honest, I, it was long, but I couldn't get enough of it. Whereas like, I make that joke about Irishman, was that there was a good two-hour movie inside a bloated three-and-a-half-hour corpse. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe there was a good 81-minute movie in The Irishman, but I, I, I wouldn't even swear to that. I won't fight you. All right, uh, so just for fun, let's talk about Capricorn 1. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> so you're going to bring us back, huh? Bringing us back. I, I was a big, I was a huge, still am, OG conspiracy theory guy. Love him. JFK at all. Capricorn 1 is a story about three astronauts played by O.J. Simpson. Huge. James Brolin. Gigantic. And Sam Waterston. Lesser so. And they are going to go to Mars. And Hal Holbrook, who plays the head of NASA, says, Guys, we had a little change of plan. And he takes them to a secret desert soundstage that looks like Mars. And they're going to pull a fast one on the American public and pretend to go to mars for the benefit of the space program and of course there's a problem and the capsule crashes or something and so they can't have these three live witnesses to this conspiracy so then it becomes uh, the third act is a chase of the the three-piece suit guy with the earpiece in his ear and sunglasses bad guy the shadowy government agent type men in black people chase them so it's a lot of fun it has all the tropes of say like a three days of the condor or a parallax view not quite as deftly handled because i don't know that batam is an alan pakula level guy but a lot of fun but in this case it is peter hyams 
Sorry, that well, that too, <laughs> and uh, and also OJ eats a snake. So I think we've reached cinema peak right there. All right then. <laughs> it just it sort of opened my eyes up to like I love that it's sort of a lost art, but in the seventies it was close enough to Watergate in Vietnam that a list big movies at the theater with movie stars and whatever were about stuff like yeah jfk was murdered by the cia and uh we never landed on the moon and it just was it was peak disbelief in the american government and the oil crisis and it was very by, by the way very similar to where we are now like sort of a loss of faith in institutions the economy is shitty, oil prices are high, people are pissed off, there was just sort of a major governmental crisis that we were still recovering from. I mean, there's a lot of parallels. The, you know, just sort of a, it was a dark time in the Republic, and then Reagan came in with a message of hope, right, in the shining city on the hill, and then pop culture wanted to change, right? That's why they, you know, look at Star Wars. The movies before that were like Deer Hunter, and they were very much like dark endings were de rigueur of that time. And then Star Wars came in and brought us the 80s where the hero wins and Indiana Jones, you know, saves the day and we can feel good about being American and all that. Historically, poor financial times, strife in America, uh, you would see Hollywood create. I think some of the best creativity comes out of Hollywood at that during those times. You see different types of films. People take risks. People want to go to the movie theaters. I'm not sure, unfortunately, that that exists anymore. Strife, political strife, financial strife always breeds this amazing creativity. Or I would say allows it a voice. Uh, yes, that's like, a better I way to put it. I think that the gatekeepers are so stressed out or dealing with other things that they accidentally allow in great creators that maybe wouldn't have come in on a good time, you know, when a boom time for the film business. It seems when crisis and they're so afraid that they allow things to happen because they don't have anything else. Can we talk about we talk about Outland? Is that a movie that's ever been talked about on your show? I would love it if you told me about Outland. All right. Imagine this. <laughs> if you will. Imagine if you will. 007 on a mining colony with a bad drug problem. Yes. Yes. With a bad drug problem, and he's the cop. He's been brought in to clean up. He's a marshal. It's a remake of High Noon in Space. With a cast of a thousand. Peter Boyle. Peter Boyle, yeah. Is the bad guy. Right. Peter, Peter Boyle as a bad guy. Another that guy that always delivers as the company man. I'm sure things work different at your last assignment, Marshall. <laughs> just, play, just play ball and everything will be fun. <laughs> We're all making money here. Come on. My people like to work hard and they like to play hard. <laughs> I'm a fan of all the movies that star uh, Cliff Clavin's mom in a lead role. There's like three or four of those. Frances Sternhagen. That's her. John Ratzenberger. I just love that John Ratzenberger was uh, 
your tauntaun's going to die out there in the snow. Then I'll see you in hell. He was one of the like Hoth janitors. Yeah, he's, he's also a general in Gandhi, and he's dubbed. Wow, oh, that sucks. Clavin. Great. They used miniatures yep. for a lot of the space station designs. They used Jerry Goldsmith to good effect. Yes, great score. And it was it was too adult for me to watch when it came out, but somehow I still Yes. There was hookers and blow and Yeah. Blood space and, drugs. It was scary. Yeah. By yeah. the way, speaking of space drugs, ice pirates anybody? Well, wait, don't, you're pivoting too fast. Sorry, I just popped into my head. We just have to talk about the whole thing where the guy gets a hole in his suit because he thinks there's spiders in it and he's got to let the spiders out. Oh, you got to let them out. And then his face, like, basically, like, turns his space helmet into a punch bowl. (laughs) (laughs) Great effects. Great, and also the plot is actually... The story is good. It's not like a shitty... Well, it's high, it's high noon. He has to do the right thing. Everyone's against him. All the other deputies back away from him. And there's a ticking clock on the wall. That's right. There is. Shuttle to arrive in four hours, three minutes. Cheek, cheek. I mean, it's just like high noon. And then the killers come. And, you know, when you have the... When you have the money and technology to build a working colony on the moon of Io, you still use fucking Remington shotguns sawed off with like a... We don't have, we don't have lasers. We got shotguns. We got shotguns in a, an environment where any window breaking will then suck the air out of the oxygen, you know, the oxygen out of 400 innocent people's fucking lungs. <laughs> Everyone gets blown into space. <laughs> And their faces will explode. But yeah, go go shoot the sod off. I'm sure you'll be really accurate with that at 10 feet. They had an awesome club there on that space base, there on the moon base. Though. You know what the club reminded me of? Do you remember Taffy's Club where Zora danced in Blade Runner with the snake? Abs- absolutely. The man is dry. Get him a drink. And this begets another conversation, which is since in our business, pre-existing IP has run amok, we're not allowed to think originally, so all we do is get more and more derivatives. So we sit around and just try to come up with prequels and sequels of beloved things. So like me and one of our friends, Tony Jeswinski, we want to do Taffy's, which is like that, just the club in Blade Runner with the fucking scumbag, definitely a pimp and also a bar owner, Taffy, kind of like Casablanca, but with replicants and stuff. Well, it sounds like it would be a a more honest and true sequel to Blade Runner than the one they made. Oh, how dare you? Actually, can we talk about that? Because, I mean, look, keep in mind, I think you know, we're trying to pick lesser knowns. We could sit here and, of course, say Blade Runner and Godfather. He forced us, folks. Everyone in the audience should know he forced us to, to bring out these obscure movies. I don't... Did you ask for obscure? You just asked for influences. Like, you wouldn't ding us if we said... It's Star Wars and Jaws, and it's, it's like we've all heard that, you know. Really what I try to tell people is if you want to come on and tell me about Jaws and Star Wars, it better be about you. Don't just tell me, Jaws is great, that scenery pops out of the water. 
thanks for reminding us of the movie we've all seen. <laughs> but if you were in the cinema and somebody punched you in the leg during that scene, that's worth mentioning. You remember? You remember? Remember the Indianapolis monologue? You remember that? Oh, remember that how they made it into a great movie starring Nicolas Cage and CGI sharks? Probably not. Oh God, that's right. <laughs> what, did oh, that happen? God. Yeah, like two years ago. Three years ago, right before the cage renaissance after Mandy. Get those damn sharks off my sailors! <laughs> I I have to tell you, I enjoyed your line reading better than anything in that film. <laughs> Wait, was that the, was that the movie about the Indianapolis? Yeah, they just did a straight like. Here's the story of the. Oh, those sailors are in those shark bellies, and they're rolling over in their shark bellies. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Yeah, I did. I did that. Oh no. As far as first timers go, I respect someone who has written a script and gone through the what we call the one percent of the one percent of the one percent and there's this kind of category that we talk about, which is the triple threat, which is writer, director, and starring in. And I've done that on a project before a couple times, actually. And that is the most dangerous situation to get into. I'm not saying it can't be done, but I'm saying when you're young and you've written something that gets enough money to get made and you're directing it and you're probably starring in it, it is very hard to navigate those waters as a first-timer. I've seen really not good stuff come out of that. And look, there's a glow to this. We're all mosquitoes or bugs flying to the light. It's something that we have to do. Alex and I have to continue. There's no choice for us. We're in it now, and there's really no place else to go unless I'm going to go work at the Home Depot, quite frankly, at this point. So... When you feel that and you're around when you're on set and when you have all of these people working for you and you feel that you've created this whole thing, it's hard for the human psyche not to be taken over by that. I don't know Christopher Nolan, but I know Christopher Nolan has gotten to the point now where he basically calls Paramount or Universal or whatever. He, I forget who he's with now. Well, it was Warner's forever, but I think they pissed him off. Yeah, they he, did. Because he would call... He took his business elsewhere. Yeah, and I think he's doing the new one through Paramount, if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. And That's right. And he basically called Paramount three or four years ago and said, I want you to reserve July for my next movie release and they're like cool what is it and he's like pound sand <laughs> like i'm not telling you what it's about i'm not showing you the screen i'm sure this is a little bit of an exaggeration but it's kind of true he doesn't look the guy makes i don't know what do you think michael does he make good movies or not no so you have a guy <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> Well, I mean, we could we could talk about Tenant. There was a time. Ah, there was a time. But I would I would argue that other than Memento, every film he has made is fundamentally flawed. Ooh. And even that one, you can probably pick apart a little bit. Now, are his films no good? No, they're they're very good. I'm just every time I see one, I'm disappointed, and that's every movie. If you cut this out of the edit, I'm going to be really mad at you. No, I, 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 like, I like this. I like this. So it's in, in what way? 
Like, what are the excesses that that really? Okay, uh, number one, and I will I will actually lop in Denis Villeneuve into this list of Ooh, filmmakers. Taking shots, I love it. I'm just going to point out some choices that very talented people are doing right now. They are underestimating the intelligence of their audiences and writing down. These guys both work on the scripts for their films, and when they make them, they are over-explaining plot points to the degree that Denis de Villeneuve has done this a few times, and so has Nolan. Nolan weirdly makes many movies with violence in them and then cuts out enough of the violence that the scenes don't make sense anymore, and I don't know what that's about. He will literally have a character in a Batman movie about to be hit by a car, cuts to a totally different part of the story, later cuts back to that person lying on the ground, and you go, sorry, did he get hit by the car? Oh, did he get shot? Well, we'll never know, because he's left that image out of the film, because at some point he became weirdly gun-shy about showing violence in action movies. That's a really interesting, that's really interesting, because I would say you're right. There, in Specifically, editorially, in the Batman, the second Batman movie, Dark Knight, The Dark Knight, there's some fundamental editing problems in that movie. If you really watch the movie and you're just not ingesting it, there's some tough stuff where you're like, what the, what? How the hell did that happen? Well, characters commit horrid acts of violence, but because the camera doesn't show them, it is weirdly, I don't want to use the word unsatisfying because that's not my point. My point is, it's so safe. It feels uncomfortable. When you see the Joker pull a knife out of someone but the camera doesn't show any repercussions, it turns into a cartoon for me. And it's in a great sequence that otherwise, just suddenly I'm asking, wait, what just happened? Very strange choices. So there's an example of a man who works primarily with his brother, and I think his wife is a producing partner, and they have been around him from the beginning. So at some point in time, I, and I don't see this probably as we'll find out with Oppenheimer, but at some point in time, like Lucas, did he become the maestro and not? I think when you can tell a studio to drop a Dunbar truck at the corner of Fifth and Alameda <laughs> and don't ask questions. Yeah. Um, yes, you are officially there. Now, whether he has the presence of mind to maybe see what's come before him and and be looking out for that i mean certainly your wife is not going to puff you up too much or anybody who's been married so maybe her as the producer is like yeah 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 okay mm-hmm. maestro shut the fuck up yeah yeah you fart in your sleep you know there might be some <laughs> there there might be some measure of the uh your valet your valet has no heroes have you ever heard that expression it just basically means the guy who has to wipe Churchill's ass will not revere him, like, you know, or whatever. Maybe he was a terrible man, maybe he threw plates at the staff, whatever. He has all the earmarks of being there. I will, I will be interested to see Oppenheimer. I don't know if it's inevitable. I don't know if absolute power corrupts absolutely. But you do need to keep at least the court jester, right, that whispers in your ear and he's like, oh, you're still human, you know, you're going to die one day and all that sort of Roman slave lore. But um, it's tough, man. It's, I mean, let, and let's clarify. The reason we're bitching about it is we wish desperately to be in that situation. A hundred percent. Oh, I don't. Not at all. Really? Not at all. I would not want to be in his position having that much responsibility 
and having to deliver that large of a finished product is it doesn't interest me frankly hmm. a very well funded decent schedule tiny movie interests me but having well this was what robert rodriguez said in i want to say 1993 or something they offered him the zorro movie they offered him the zorro movie and he said great give me 20 million dollars and i'll deliver you a great zorro movie and they said well we're going to give you 80 million dollars and he said but i don't want 80 million and then they said well we're making an 80 million dollar zorro movie and he said okay find someone else because what he said was 20 million dollars we're going to make the movie i want for 80 million we're going to make the movie they want and that's not interesting to me and under those circumstances with that many handcuffs on it's it's tough yeah, I think Mr. Nolan lost the handcuffs a long time ago. <laughs> it's true that he can do whatever he wants, which is phenomenal. But I think that he should, if he doesn't want to make action films, don't make action films. That's fine with me. Oppenheimer, I don't know anything about what the actual movie will be. So I'm hoping there is relatively little scenes with gunfire. Well, it's odd that you mention that because Oppenheimer... Oppenheimer actually was a known pugilist and marksman, so I think a lot of the movie is going to be about him shooting and killing all of the other scientists. <laughs> I don't know for fact. I think they just I think they dropped him without a parachute out of the Enola Gay and he single-handedly killed 200,000 Japanese people. Yeah, there was no nuclear bomb. Oppenheimer <laughs> was actually a Terminator, and this is going to dovetail he, he's going to take over the Terminator series. It's going to be great. Killian Murphy as a Terminator. Didn't see that coming, did you? I think everything you guys said is totally valid. And I, 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 I am, I'm, I'm interested to see Oppenheimer. It, for us, man, I mean, I get what you're saying. That's valid. But I, w I would point out that there's no such thing as a well-funded and scheduled indie movie. Like, that's... that's yeah, it's, that's, <laughs> that's a fucking... I was, like, I was shaking my head on that one, too. Yeah, like, what, what, what is that? Uh, Ryan, before we, we're done completely, and we have been talking a really long time, before we're done completely, I would like to offer you the opportunity to sell me on Ice Pirates. You mentioned it to me earlier. Alex told us about his love of Final Countdown. I told you about my probably um, misdirected love for my science project. It is your turn to give us one of these ridiculous 80s movies that... Uh, so have you seen Ice Pirates by any chance? I kind of mix it up with Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. Yes, the 3D movie. Muller and yes. Wald, Peter Strauss movie. Yes. Good job, Michael. This movie, Ice Pirates, I know is Robert Urich. But it's, <laughs> it's been a while. So remind me of what's great about Ice Pirates. So Ice Pirates is your 80s genre movie that again would have never be made are you, are you asking me what i love about it yes. or i love that someone took an absolute bananas risk on and alex what was the name of the company was it canon what was the name of the company that the guys from israel ran yeah it was canon and then Coralco. i mean there was all these like really interesting foreign finance shadowy money source guys <laughs> and so so this was an MGM movie that was a genre movie. I don't remember when it... Oh, 1984. 
and it it was off of like making a comedy out of i i love comedies but it was making a comedy out of a space adventure movie and it was just the fact that it was kind of like airplane in space a little bit comedy action yeah comedy action kind of a buddy picture as well and it just it had terrible effects but for some reason that movie just stuck with me forever i saw it in the theater and the only there are two movies that I saw in the theater. I used to go with my great. Uh, I talk about my great aunt Hester a lot, and I used to go see movies with my great aunt Hester at the Rivoli, which was this big old movie house. And uh, this is a very personal story. And I saw if you've ever seen Ice Pirates, seeing it with your great aunt is uncomfortable to <laughs> say the least. The only thing I can equate it to is. I went to go see The Nude Bomb with my great aunt Hester. I don't know if you know that classic. That was the uh, Get Smart movie, right? The Naked Bomb or The Nude Bomb? The bomb that made everybody naked. And I was with my great aunt Hester in the Rivoli watching The Nude Bomb. And then I think we watched Ice Pirates. Ice Pirates has a space herpy, a herpy that an actual creature that gives you herpes and gives your ship herpes. And I just remember that I was so enthralled by like the robots, the jokes, the risks. And I was obviously young at the time and probably didn't understand. It was like watching Bugs Bunny as a child. There were jokes that went totally over my head. But looking back on it, I do remember kind of squirming because there's a love scene. Like there's a real kind of passionate sex scene that goes on for too long. And watching that movie in the theater with my great aunt was uncomfortable to say <laughs> say the least it was it was uncomfortable mostly when she leaned over and like he's really giving it to her isn't she yeah that was weird i didn't but ice pirates has robert urich ron perlman is in it angelica houston is in it wow they got i mean it was a summer movie for mgm and and, it, and they spelled ice pirates the s was a dollar sign right it was just like aliens it was a dollar sign in fact no no uh that's a vegas joke because he was bob urich was the lead in a, a show called vegas and the s was a dollar sign anyway i got it <laughs> i gotta go i gotta go change my colostomy bag sorry i'll be right back <laughs> Also, Bruce Valanche was in it, and any movie with Bruce. No. Yeah. He's a, he actually just plays a head. It's hilarious. <laughs> it's just Bruce Valanche's head. And it's terrible. Like, looking back on it, it's not great. I don't think it's aged very well. I did watch it again within the past, like, six months or a year, and it's it's hard to watch. But it has some of the best. I just remember laughing. It just had some of the best jokes, again, that you probably couldn't do today can't get away with there's a really good line if i remember correctly is that the chief like the second in command to robert urich they're pirates and he makes he takes the spare parts of all the robots that are destroyed and makes one super robot and he's building it and robert urich casually says hey i happen to notice the robot is black and he was like, why did you do that? And he goes, well, I wanted to make him perfect. And it, I just, it's just an amazing line. It's fantastic. It's, it's fantastic. I just quickly went and looked up if there were any reviews for Ice Pirates. And I found the, the highest rated review for it is this. A handful of funny brainstorms can be found rattling around the slapdash confines of Ice Pirates. It's almost entertaining despite itself. It's terrible. 
But that is the best review. <laughs> <laughs> Everything else just trashes it. I'm not I'm not a good person, so it just was a it was a fun summer movie that I remember seeing in it when it was hot. It's more about the age than the yeah. A hundred percent. Your your music taste is stuck in the you know your high school or when when you first fell in love or something. It's it's kind of along those lines. All these movies were from our childhood, lesser seen. But I wanted to give credit for I don't know a lot of them. I think if there's a theme to what we just brought up is they wouldn't get made today. They're big swings, they're big ideas. They don't entirely land, but I guess we were the right age and sort of mindset to to relish in them. What Orson Welles really hated about Kubrick, and which I talk about constantly, is to be that caliber of director, to reach the Icarus level, the, you know, the demigod level, to be given the $200 million in a delivery date person. You have to be an artist. You have to have some talent, but you have to be a diplomat. Next Chapter Podcasts.